your heart drops. Is this it? Is this the moment the company dies? Tom Bloomfield, entrepreneur, investor, and founder of Monzo. I've never actually talked about this before. After six months, I just thought, I can't work with this person. I just really, it's really damaging to me and my mental health. And so I resigned. And the response to that resignation, she called an all-hands meeting and fired the entire company. If I knew then what I knew now, I would never have done it, really. If I knew what the amount of pain and heartache that would be involved, I would never have started. But I didn't know that. I cry quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not ashamed of that. For about three or four seconds, I'd forgotten what my life was. I was calm. And then three or four seconds later, all the memories came back and it was just like this crushing weight. That really was the moment I sort of knew this is, this is no life. There were no other emotions in my life really apart from just anxiety. I mean, it was serious by the end. We would detect criminals and shut their accounts down. Customers would turn up sometimes with weapons and they threatened to turn up with, you know, a bottle of acid and throw it in someone's face. That was tough. Tom Bloomfield, what a remarkable entrepreneur. One of the UK's recent real success stories, and he and his team managed to disrupt the archaic incumbent banking system at a time when nobody thought it could be disrupted. But man, his story is crazy. Absolutely crazy. And the reason why I started The Diary of a CEO is demonstrated perfectly in this podcast. It has it all. Controversy, drama, business wars, depression, anxiety, resilience, success, and failure. And today you're going to hear a particular business story, one that's never been heard before. But Tom felt that today and here was the place to share it. If you're an aspiring entrepreneur and you want to get to the point in your life where you're running a hundred million or a billion pound company, today might be your warning. Because as Tom is going to tell you, all that glitters isn't gold. And the true cost of entrepreneurship, the cost that nobody seems to talk about, is sometimes greater than the reward on offer. This is one of the most emotional, raw, honest, vulnerable, brilliant, gripping conversations I've ever had on this podcast. And I can't thank Tom enough for opening up his diary and allowing us to look inside. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is the Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Tom, why, why entrepreneurship? I made a very bad employee. <laughs> I think I've never been promoted and I've been fired, I would guess, two or three times, depending on how you count. Why were you fired so often? Um, my first ever job was a consulting firm in London. I actually wasn't fired from this one. I was, um, but I wasn't promoted. And they said I was uh, highly disruptive and not in a good way, not in a sort of, you know, tech founder disrupts industry, more in sort of, you know, annoying junior analysts can't follow instructions. Um, so I think I'm much, I'm much better founder than I am a, an employee. Well, what was it about you that was disruptive, though? I want some s- specifics. Um, whenever I'm, I see a problem. I think that this is in common with anyone who starts a business. I look at the way something's done and immediately start thinking of better ways to do it, rather than just doing what I'm told. I sort of scratch my head and think, no, this just doesn't make sense to me. Why are we doing it this way? That we could do it in this other way, which is ten times faster. I mean, I one of my first ever jobs was to. Uh, with another analyst, go and count all of the 
jewelry items on a like a massive jewelry website. There must have been a thousand to do a tally chart of the price range. And this guy started doing them by hand. So I scratched my head and wrote a little Excel script to scra- basically scrape the website and just tally them up and go, there's your results. And that, but they didn't want that because they were billing by the hour and that had only taken an hour of my time rather than 20 hours. And so they could only bill me out for an hour. And they're like, no, 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 go back and do it by hand. So it, that kind of stuff just drove me crazy. And I was always just looking for ways to automate, ways to do things better. Um, I guess that's what led me into entrepreneurship. Have you heard about this idea of first principle thinking? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. My co-founder Jonas at Monzo is just, I think he would say first principle thinking at least once a day. Because that's that sounds to me like first principle thinking. You're looking at c- conventions way of doing things and thinking, well, no, this is there's a much easier. Yeah, way. absolutely. You sort of start from physics and build build up from there. Really, how's that? How's that boded for you in your in your personal life though? So if, because life is personal life is full of convention, marriage, school, <laughs> follow this path. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I'm not married, but certainly when I was younger, I followed that conventional path. I, I went to a grammar school, I did my exams, I got a place at Oxford, um, I even did a master's at Oxford. So I sort of, I was following that conventional path towards becoming a lawyer, I guess. But somewhere along the way, um, I started realizing it probably wasn't for me. Um, but, but definitely in the early years, that was my path. You built this hyper fast growing business which was, uh, you know, funny that you used the word disruptor, which was known as one of the UK's great disruptors and still is known as one of the UK great disruptors. Um, can you tell me why, like, because I, when I when I speak to Shaq, do you know Shaq, Shaquille Khan? Yeah. About Daniel Ek. Yeah. And when I think about your story, you both made the decision to take on just what, what, what many entrepreneurs would consider to be an immovable object. Mm. You took on the banking system. Yeah. Um, Daniel Ek took on the, in this massive music industry that was seemed yeah. to be immune to change. I was talking to Shaq about this last week. Oh, really? He yeah. texted me last night about um, about Harry's new fund. So he, I think that's why he's fresh of mind. What, what what gave you the conviction and the confidence that you could take on such a mammoth industry with Monzo? Um, I mean, arrogance, for, mm. naivety and arrogance, I think, in no small part. Um I'd already built a company called GoCardless, which is a payment processor. So that sort of taught me that, you know, three young guys could get access to the payment system and, and actually move money around. Um, and banking was a step up from there. It was, it was more regulated, more complicated. Um, but I, I had the background in payments and I was an early NatWest user, or rather when I was young and they were very old, I was a NatWest user and I was deeply, deeply disappointed. And I think like any founder, really a, a huge sort of dose of naivety. You know, you look at a problem and think it's probably... I think if I knew now what I knew, if I knew then what I knew now, I would never have done it, really. If I knew what the amount of pain and heartache that would be involved, I would never have started. But I didn't know that. And so I had a huge amount of self-confidence, huge amount of naivety, uh, and just assumed that I could figure it out. And I think we got a really, really long way. And I mean, the company's still doing fabulously. So I'm incredibly proud of of, of what we built. I find that point about naivety so interesting, because it almost feels like founders like yourself need to be deluded on one end in terms yep. of their own confidence, yep. right? Because if you look at the stats and all the odds, they're clearly against you. So founders like yourself seem to be, I, I, deluded sounds like a, a negative word, but it's like, for me, I'm saying it in a positive way, almost like deluded to the, or naive to the the stats and the probability of this success. Yeah, totally. But also self-aware enough to listen to feedback and to not be blinded by their hypotheses. Listen to some feedback. I mean, a lot of the feedback I got in the early days was, this is impossible, you can never do it. You know, go back to a day job. Um, 
So I think you do have to be incredibly optimistic as well. But a little bit like investing, I'm doing a little bit of investing now. I think you, if you have a lot of experience, the downside is you've seen these ideas fail again and again and again. And it's really hard to then leave that baggage behind and and look at a company. Um, I looked at one yesterday. It's like, I've seen that model fail four times. Not my, you know, I wasn't running it. Others were running it. But to um, have a fresh enough mind to think, okay, maybe the timing's different. Maybe the founding team's different. Maybe the technology's changed. This can now work. So I think actually the benefit of being naive and even being quite young in your career is you don't have that baggage of knowing how it failed the five times before, Mm. um, which I I find super interesting. When you're looking at founders in your investments now, from your own experience of being a founder, yep. what are the attributes you're looking for? I mean, the the really simple one is being technical. Being able to write code, I think, is just a huge, huge leg up. And all of the founders who aren't technical, and there are many great ones, um, I think their biggest problem at the early stage is finding a technical co-founder. So that's just a an immediate benefit. And if you know, if I could talk to my, um, if I could talk to people in a sort of if age 12 to 18, I would basically just go and say, learn to code. You're going to have a really well-paying career for the rest of your life. And it'll, it's a great step in, into entrepreneurship. Are you technical? Yeah. I learned to code when I was 12 or 13. Oh, wow. Built websites. Um, me. Um, I mean, I was never, I, I studied law, not computer science, but I can, I can code. I, there's still code I wrote probably in the Monzo code base somewhere. Mm. I think it puts the emojis into the, the, the push notifications, but, um, uh, yeah, so being technical, I think, is just the easy answer. Um, more fundamentally, I think, just being really, really determined and resilient. Seeing, a, as we said, a, an immovable object and either finding a way sort of round it or over it or under it or just straight through it. You know, some that um, being indefatigable, basically, I think is is the single biggest predictor of success. You, um, you, you strike me as someone that has great confidence. And I imagine that's come from, as you kind of alluded to with Go Cardless, you've built evidence over time that you could do things. So I, and I, I, I sometimes think of confidence as like a self-reinforcing cycle, either upwards or downwards. Um, I think I was more confident when I was 28 than I am now, for sure. And I think really? that comes with experience. Um, I think you, you take enough knocks that you start to, and you realise you don't know. I think at 27, 28, I thought I knew everything. And now I realise I, you know, I like to think I know a lot about a lot of things, but I, I realise I don't. Um, and so my I'm still a confident person, I'd guess. But if you put me in front of my 27-year-old self, I think you would see two different people. Maybe less naivety. Maybe that would be yeah, a starting exactly, difference, yeah. right? I've seen the failures a few times now. Because I, I, I was saying that because there's a lot of um, lot of young people in my, in my DMs that are dreaming big dreams like yours, but they would just never have the confidence or conviction to pursue them. So mm. I was wondering, is that... I was, I'm trying to get to, the I guess, the crux of what made you so starkly different from every, all of the young people that have at least verbalized equally big dreams. I, I think I'm also just really impulsive. So I, I think quite self-confident, but I was, um, I've taken quite big life decisions without very much reflection. Mm. Um, and that's worked out really well. For, I'm, you know, I'm hugely privileged. I, um, I've grown up in the UK, which I think is enormous privilege compared to a lot, you know, people in my position, but growing up in, in rural Africa are not going to have the same opportunities. Mm. I have great education. I had parents who supported me and I knew I could take risk because if that risk didn't pay off, I have, a, I have that safety net. And so, um, yes, I was confident. I think, yes, I was impulsive, but I, that was enabled from a place of huge privilege because I could take the risk. And I, and I actually think people in this country, 
um, with great supportive families don't take enough risk in general. I think um, people go into um, pretty safe careers in law or consulting or whatever. And I think they could um, do more interesting things, have more impact, you know, make more money if that's what drives you by taking more risk. And I just don't think they do. And I, I think I put myself on the risk loving end of the spectrum. Um, and so I've quit jobs and moved countries with, you know, with like hours notice. Um, I started Go Cardless uh, with Matt Hiroki because I quit my consulting job to go to a bigger consultancy. And in that gardening leave, I just got bored. I had three months off and they said, let's start a website. And I said, yes. And then Y Combinator said, come out and interview. And we did. And we got the offer to do Y Combinator and their investment about three days before my McKinsey start date. So I just sort of said, ah, this sounds fun. I'll, I'll do this startup thing instead. You launch Go Cardless. You take that to, I think, a nine-figure valuation. Uh, it's $970 million at their last round, I believe. That's what was reported. So not quite a billion. Um, okay, 10-figure valuation. <laughs> 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 we'll round up, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, that is, a, that, that is an achievement that most people in their lifetimes would, you know, would never go near um, in and of itself. You, you then depart your cardless. I left after. early. Um, I, we were 35 people. You know, it was a, the valuation was in the region of 30 or 40 million at the time. I mean, Hiroki, my co-founder at the time, um, uh, took on the CEO role and has done a, just a phenomenal job. I'm just 10 and a half years old now. It's, and it's, but it's been that was not an overnight success story. That was 10 and a half years of really, really hard work and huge credit to him and Matt also who, who stuck around a lot longer than me. I was there for the first three years. I think I put something of myself into it, but it was, I was there for the beginning, not the, uh, not the middle and certainly not the end. Why did you leave? I wasn't really, I think it was a great company, but I wasn't really passionate about, um, B2B direct debit software. It helps, you know, um, Lots of different uh, suppliers collect money from their customers um, in a sort of back office way. It didn't have a big consumer brand. It wasn't direct to consumer really. Um, and I didn't, B2B sales, I found uh, really difficult and frustrating and not something I was good at. Uh, and the tech kind of was built um, and that had been my role. Uh, so I sort of, I went from there to join a dating site, which is like the polar opposite, you know, uh, all about brand, direct to consumer, um, really fun every day, uh, terrible business model. <laughs> yeah, <I can laughs> that was imagine. one of the ones I got fired from. Right. Um, I was head of growth and we stopped growing. Oh. Um, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> you were head of growth and you stopped and the company stopped growing. Very self-aware and honest for you to admit that. Mm. And in fact, I saw the charts and it looked like a rocket ship when I was sort of interviewing there. Four, crazy 48 hour interview process. I flew out to New York. They showed me sort of their growth charts, really sort of hockey stick metrics. Um, and then it sort of started to plateau and I kind of ignored that. You know, I said, okay, that's my job to come in. It, it had flattened out and I joined to kind of re- reignite. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't able to reignite it. We sort of plateaued along for about 10 months and then it fell off a cliff. Revenue declined 70% um, within about two to four weeks without any kind of macroeconomic, you know, this wasn't COVID or something. This was back in 2014. The world was going well. The dating site just was no longer cool, I think. Um, so we rode this wave of popularity and sort of zeitgeist. Um, it was called Grouper. It was, a, it was incredibly sort of cool novel idea back in 2013, 14. Um, and then people just got bored of it, I think. So the idea was, um, it was six of you, three, three guys and three girls or three guys and three guys, if that's your, your preference, um, or three girls and three girls. Um, but six of you, you and two friends would go and meet three other people. Mm. Uh, so you knew your friends and they knew each other and it would put the group together and you'd kind of go and have a wild night out. Um, rather than traditional dating 
app, which is sort of one-on-one. This was sort of a group social experience. Uh, really, really fun, but um, not a great business model. You got fired? Uh, yeah, most of the company got laid off, actually. Yeah. And then you took how long off before you swung back into the next thing? Um, so I, uh, about two months, but only about two months, um, because it was the US, I was on a weird visa. This is not interesting, but basically I couldn't take another job and I couldn't, as soon as I crossed the US border, my visa expired. Yes, I've, yeah. But whilst I was there, I could stay there for actually two years or something. Um, So I just spent a summer in New York chilling out and then came back to the UK. And I think about 48 hours after arriving in the UK, I met up with Anne Bowden at Starling and agreed to be their CTO within about, again, 24 hours. Um, And there's a lot written about how, I mean, how your relationship with Anne transpired and your relationship with Starling more broadly transpired. What's, what are, what are the key highlights from that, from that journey? Choose your co-founder really carefully. Really? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, there were 14 of us at Starling and 13 of us started Monzo. It was that stark. Wait, say that again. 14 people at Starling and 13 of you started Monzo. 13 of those 14 started 13 Monzo. of those 14 started Monzo. Okay. Including the chairman of the board, um, the entire management team, the office manager, everyone. So one, one would say, well, you know, Tom must have ripped them all away. From <laughs> <Starling>. <laughs> no, no, yes, I, I just didn't want to work with Anne. Like really? the, I ha- I've never actually talked about this before. And there was, there has been a book. I haven't read the book. Um, I'll, the brief version is after six months, I got fired twice in six months. Um, I was never paid. I invested my own money, which is I lost. Um, there was never any paperwork, which is my fault. Um, and after six months, I just thought, I, I can't work with this person. I just really, it's really damaging to me and my mental health. And so I resigned. And the response to that resignation, she called an all-hands meeting and fired the entire company. Because you resigned? Yep. So I didn't, I didn't pull anyone away. She fired the entire company. That's not true. Two people happened to not be in the office. So they weren't at the meeting where they got fired. <laughs> so they had to work two weeks notice because they weren't technically fired. <laughs> but everyone else was fired. So we all went to this gin bar to kind of, it was called Ask for Janice on Smithfield Market. It's a great bar. You should go there. Um, we all went there to basically commiserate. Just think, this is crazy. What's, what's just happened? And literally, it's, I think we were there for two days, basically, in this gin bar, playing. We, we, we all played speed chess. It was this very nerdy kind of four-player speed. We were playing lots and lots of speed chess, uh, just trying to figure out what we we're going to do. And eventually, like, we can, um, we think we can do this ourselves. Um, so it, it wasn't a case of, like, you know, me leading a coup, me pulling the company away. I quit. I was just like, good luck to you. I'm just, I'm going to go and sit on a beach for a while. And in response, she fired the entire company, which is just... I think a reflection of the way she she operates. I can't quite wrap my head around the idea of one person resigning and then firing everybody as a show of, I don't even know. No, it's not something I would do. Where did, where did that leave Starling though? If they only, if they had lost pretty much everybody other than the two people that didn't manage to make it into work that day and... They also resigned the day after, yeah, to come and work with us. Um, uh, she hired another management team, another oh, team. Oh, really? Okay. And it turned out that we weren't the first team. There'd been a previous team as well. Oh, wow. That she'd fired. Wow. And then, off, so that's that's crazy. So you started, essentially, Monzo was founded in that gin bar. Yep. Yep. Ask for Janice. <laughs> it's, and it's still there. We go back for some of our reunions. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
And how did you feel? So you, you're fired, you know, from Starling. You all convene in this gin bar. You spend a couple of days there. You end up um, deciding that you're going to go again together. Yep. And I, I guess you feel pretty fired up and charged up to not only disrupt the industry, but also to compete with Starling, no? Um, Almost unavoidable, that feeling of... Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but we didn't, I didn't really know that, that she, you know, Anne was going to rehire a bunch of people. It, um, but it was over, right? And there was a big feeling of like, we put quite a lot of work into this actually. And like, we've had to leave everything behind. So we came to, you know, rewrite the code base, redo do all our regulatory submissions really from scratch, which was kind of like a, oh, I wish we didn't have to do this, but we did. Um, uh, but in a way it actually led us we'd made the mistakes once the first time. So actually that sort of rebuilding process was nice because it was on fresh ground. Mm. Um, but yeah, it felt like a, I mean, initially we tried to negotiate with Anne and say, why did, you know, why did you step down? Why did like, how can we, we don't want to throw away this site. It, for some people, they've been there 12 months. Why are we throwing away 12 months of work? And that was a sort of very convoluted week or two um, where we almost had a deal a couple of times and it just similar thing happened, you know, huge mm. blow up and we just walked away. Um, but no, we never, I think at Monza, we never really thought about the competition. Actually, it wasn't a, you know, we weren't looking over our shoulder at Revolut or at Starling. It was, um, uh, if anything, we were looking at the big banks thinking, how can we take market share off them? Co-founders. Mm. When you started Monza, you started with, was, was Paul Ripping yep. your only co-founder? No, uh, there were, f- uh, and it was, all, it was sort of weird actually because of 13 of us, like, how do you pick which ones are you all, they were all literally there on day one. Um, so in a sense, that was the founding team and they all got stock, like not options, but actually full, you know, stock. Um, but the, for arbitrary reasons, which I can't really remember, there were five of us. So myself, Paul, um, became deputy CEO and was a chief risk officer. He became deputy CEO because the Bank of England looked at me and I was thinking I was 29 or 30 or something. And I said, you've, have you ever worked in a bank? No. It's like, and you're applying to be CEO of our newest bank. Yes. And they sort of scratch your head for a bit and said, how about this sort of very experienced guy next to you, this co-founder of yours? How about, they didn't say that. They said, we'd like you to find a deputy CEO who's actually run a bank before, please. Okay. And I, you know, I said, Paul has run several banks. So he became deputy C- CEO. Gary was CFO. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been at ABN AMRO uh, and Mizuho Bank, I think. Uh, there's a guy called Jason, who is sort of more customer and marketing. And then Jonas who is the only one left now was a CTO, really, really talented developer. Um, so he stepped into the CTO role. How important is that? You talked earlier about the importance of business partners and uh, that being one of your big regrets, but how critically important is, because, you know, definitely one of the biggest mistakes I made in my career was when I was very young, just hired anybody mm. because I thought, you know, like, oh, you like, I remember being in Selfridges one day, there, there was a guy selling Prada bags of like, you can be a director. You know what I mean? Because you don't know what you don't know. And you're- <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> I did. I was fucking, I was like 18. So, yeah. um, but I, in hindsight, I, I know it's the most, well, for me, that core team is the most important thing. Yeah. It's the, yep. probably the single biggest determining factor of success or failure I in agree, my yes. view. Yeah. So how, how important was it for you to, to assemble, um, that skilled co-founding team? I mean, it was, it was luck at Monzo because that was the group that was at Starling. And it was sort of like, how do we keep this team together? And it really was a sort of, it felt like everyone's going to disappear into the wind. Um, there was a, you know, it really was a debate. Are we going to really try and do this again? Or, you know, is this it? We just go back to whatever we were doing before. And so to keep everyone together, I think it wasn't a, 
And so I think we were really fortunate. We had such a, a great um, different set of skills, um, but it wasn't hugely uh, sort of planned. I, mean, I, I have a, a, another example of this. I started a company at, um, when I was at university through Young Enterprise. And on day one, there were like 14 co-found, co-founders of this business, which is just a ridiculous way to start a company. And within about two months, we had meetings and meetings and meetings, nothing ever got done. So within three months or so, three of us basically said, look, you 11, you can have it right on your CV. That's what you want. But, you know, you're not really here to run a business. The three of us actually are going to like work all summer. Um, one of them uh, quit his job to do it. He just left to work at Deutsche Bank. And the three of us are actually going to try and run a startup here. Mm. And so f- figuring out that core team, I think, is re- is really, really important to get right. And having a group of 14 is not the way to do it, really. When you when you started Monzo from that, I say from the gym bar, it wasn't really from the gym bar, but you see what I mean? That was the kind of, I guess, the inception moment. Um, what was the driving force for you to go on that journey? Was it money? Was it the, the chance of, you know, moving an industry? What was it? Oh, gosh. Uh, insecurity. I think for me, it was, I was much of the reason I started my business was probably based on deep in- childhood insecurities about wanting to be rich and <laughs> yeah, like all of that, I think, tied up into a bunch of weird sort of deep-rooted psychological problems. Um, wanting to prove myself, wanting to win, or wanting to be seen to be successful, I think. Um, and money played a part in it, not the driving part, but certainly there was a factor there. Um, a deep hatred for NatWest Bank. Mm. Um, Why? They were just incredibly frustrating to use. Mm-hmm. Just every everyone who's came to work at Monzo had one of these horror stories about their banks. You know, Matt, one of our early developers, went 10p overdrawn with a, a different bank and paid the 10p in um, and then closed the account. It's like, I'm done with this. But he'd incurred the charge. He didn't know they applied the charge at the end of the month. So it's like a £5 overdraft fee at that month, which then the month after and month after and month after should have rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And two, you know, two years later, they came after him for several thousand pounds because oh, he'd been 10p overdrawn for a day. Um, it just everyone's got those kind of stories. And so a big part of it was a frustration that banking worked like that. And, it, and a sort of feeling that it didn't have to be like that because we looked at apps like Spotify or, mm. or Uber and they felt magical. You know, the idea, for people who've grown up with that technology, it's sort of normal now. But I rem- you know, I downloaded Napster for the first time. I remember showing my dad and my uncle, you know, think of any song you want in the world. Type it. Yeah, type it in and, and then it starts playing. And that's, that is magical. Mm. Um, but now it's so commonplace. And banking for years has just been, you, know, you want to change some, change your address. Down, I've downloaded a form, filled in the form, signed it and had to post it off. This is for an online bank. Um, so we really just, felt quite deeply that it could be the experience could be much much better and the, one of the other reasons you gave there as a driving force was wanting to be seen to win yeah or Can you explain that one not to win i think that's probably the wrong i i use that phrase but i to be seen to be a success i think like validation yeah validation. kind of yeah and, you know that's to my family and my friends and my school and teachers and um you've you already been a success though with go cardless did you know yeah, I had a bit, but Go Cardus circa 2014, 2015 was uh, still relatively unknown. It was doing well, but not. It wasn't a breakout success yet in the way it is today. I don't think. Um, Just yeah. on that feeling of wanting that validation from friends, because we can all relate to that. 
Like I'm I'm playing devil's advocate, but I know exactly what you mean. You're on a TV show. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm doing a podcast with 17 cameras right now, you know. Um, but, uh, but just drilling down into that, in hindsight, was that a feeling that you think could have ever been attained? Um, was it a mirage? I think I have attained it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I don't mean I'm the world's big success. Mm. That's not what I mean. I mean that like I've tasted what that feels like. That, mixing my metaphors there. I felt what that feels, you know, I've experienced that thing, that sort of like being in the newspapers and that sort of um, people using a Monzo card and uh, that stuff. And it's somewhat rewarding, but it's not like I, I and I don't feel anymore. I, I think what I'm trying to say is sort of that, need to prove myself has sort of disappeared actually um and so either i've realized it was a stupid goal to start with or like i got far enough along that i sort of like ticked that off the list and sort of thought you know that sort of it was fun but it's not my overriding purpose now mm-hmm. um and i'm not and your next question is what is your purpose I, i'm not sure i have one it's sort of more like living day to day and enjoying life and i i was never good at that i've really really driven from a very very young age so i worked incredibly hard for my exams and my, you know, through Oxford and starting companies um, and very rarely paused to enjoy the journey or the, you know, the, the cliche, the small things in life, the, you know, the choose your cliche, right? Like mm. how your coffee tastes in the morning or the sort of the tweeting of the birds in the, in the trees and that stuff. Now I'm, I'm spending more time kind of being more, I guess, mindful and kind of living in the moment. Do you have to like reprogram yourself to get there though? Because I feel like society, well for me anyway, is um, kind of conditions you to to chase, climb, promote, move up, strive, and and you're kind of deferring your happiness t- t- towards some future achievement or accomplishment. Yeah. So how do you get to the point where you just enjoy it, what it, you know, life for what it is in the moment? Was it a reprogramming? That you- yeah, I guess. And like you know, like you, I I left my company. I didn't. Um, and that was t- really, really hard. And that was not a, that was, um, you know, deep, deep anxiety bordering on depression. And, uh, like I, I, I wouldn't use the words rock bottom, but like, it was not a happy time. And so then recovering from that, uh, and I took a year off and, you know, traveled around Europe went kite surfing and learned a language and all this kind of, you know, cliches. Um, and that experience now leads me uh, whenever I, I still get these like urges, like, oh, it's sort of, um, they, my local MP passed away a few months ago and there was a by-election. I was like, why did I, why did I stand for that seat? And I could be a, an MP and then maybe I could, you know, maybe I could be the prime minister. And then I'm like, but then what? Yeah. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think like oh, I, I could start a company and then it, you know, what if it goes well? And then I end up running a big company again and that'll be all. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just like a couple of sort of those brain cycles. And I'm like, no, what am I, what am I thinking? Um, I quite quickly come back to like, I'm really enjoying my life at the moment. I'm lucky enough that I'm financially sort of independent now. I have a great group of friends. Like why, um, why do I want to go and make myself miserable again? Um, where, where does that narrative, that voice come from? So many people have that voice because it's funny because you're saying, right, I'm, I'm at, I'm at a stage of peace now. I wasn't before, but you still have that yearning or that voice that comes in. Go on, Tom, do it. Um, it's that, it's that sort of, I guess, disruptive kind of, um, I see something that's not working and it's incredibly frustrating. And I go, I could, I could make that work better. I'm, um, I'm, uh, 
reluctant. And I've talked about this before. I'm working in the in the I'm volunteering in the vaccination program, and it sounds like a sort of um, I'm proud of doing it, and it's like a great feeling, kind of being part of a, a team that's uh, hopefully helping kind of the country get out of this lockdown rubbish. Um, but even there, there are so many things that just drive me absolutely nuts. Um, and I think that's probably the NHS sort of more broadly. I think the smart use of technology could really, really improve the way we deliver care to everyone, really medical care. And so I keep thinking, I just want to like, just give me, I, you know, system. <laughs> um, I just, yeah. What, why can't I just come in and fix it for, a, and it's incredibly, you know, I've struggled with a company of 2000 people. The NHS employs, I think a million and a half people or something. So um, probably not for me, but there's always that, like your question, you know, what, what is that sp- drive it's the looking at something that's like clearly broken at least to my naive eyes um and that feeling that i feel like along with a small group of smart people i could make it better you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. What were the, the, the good times at Monzo? The times you look back most fondly? Small team. So sub 100. Um being able to um, go from a, a kind of an idea or a customer insight or something like a conversation with a customer about a problem to figuring out a kind of product feature to very quickly prototyping and building that and launching it and then seeing people use it um, and then tell all their friends about it. That very quick iterative product development cycle I love. Um, and a lot of the brand and marketing stuff uh, I when I was at GoCardus, I didn't believe in brand, uh, which is a ridiculous thing to say. Um, and I, you know, you as a marketing background, it's, yeah. that's almost offensive, I guess. But I was <laughs> like, no, this is, you know, this is, doesn't this doesn't exist really. People, um, and then the da- when I worked at the dating site, that really opened my eyes to the kind of power of human psychology and brand and and mission and values. And we really took a lot of that into Monzo, and that it it was just astonishing. Um, so we started out even before we had a product talking a lot about our mission uh, and and some of our values like transparency and kind of community orientation. Mm. And that worked so incredibly well. Um, so yeah, it was working with a small team to build the brand, build the product, get it into users' hands really quickly and then see them enjoy it. I've talked about this a lot before, that feeling of um, standing in line at a coffee shop and seeing the person at the counter paying with a, the hot coral Monzo card. And then having the bartender or the the service, you know, I've I've got one of those as well. And then listening to that conversation as sort of an anonymous bystander, that's just incredibly rewarding. Feeling that you've had a hand in in creating something that's that people are enjoying so much. Let's dig into the point about brand then marketing because Monzo really was a UK standout brand. I think everybody knew it. 
um, even if they didn't use it yep. because of its disruptive values, because of it, it felt unconventional in everything it did. I mean, even the card yep. was completely unconventional. Intentionally, yeah. Tell me, tell me what the secret was to Monzo's branding success. Um, authenticity, I okay. think. Um, it was, we had a couple of early marketing hires who, who didn't work out. Um, and they were very senior people from very, very big companies who came in and they were a lot older and came in as sort of like, you know, how, how the kids are going to think about this. And we were like, we, we are the kids. Um, so we had a very early community manager called Tristan Thomas, who was there from almost you know, the first few months. Uh, he'd just very recently left to start his own company. And he's now, he was VP of, of um, marketing, running a massive team with a massive budget by the end. But he was a 23-year-old when he started, you know, 23, 24-year-old. Um, and I worked to, on it a lot. Hugo, our head of design, worked on it a lot. And it was um, it was just an authentic representation of, I think, who we were and what we believed more than anything. And we we did want to be different from the big banks. We intentionally positioned ourselves as a part. So the hot roll card, every other bank was, you know, blue or purple or kind of a shade of black, basically. So we were like, how far can, from that can we get? And the big banks were very impersonal. You know, you, you never felt like you were talking to a human. And so we everything we did was human and transparent. Um, we we shared a lot of internal information that everyone, you know, we published our product roadmap. This is what we're going to be working on for the next two years, which people thought were was bonkers, but it, that was a way of building trust and humanity in opposition to these big sort of faceless banks. Um, these all sound like first principles. Yeah. We, none of Tristan had never worked in marketing before. His previous job was at a refugee camp in, in the Middle East. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd never really worked in marketing. I'd spent nine months at a dating site, but we, yeah, we, um, we came up, we thought about these principles and it felt like the kind of company we wanted to run. And so um, we did and it worked really well. Um, yeah, with, without any experience. Goes to show the risk of reading marketing books. <laughs> no, genuinely, <laughs> I've always thought this because I've never studied marketing or did any yeah. degree. In, you know, our business work was did really well in, in the marketing industry, but I, I think it did well because we hadn't read those books and we hadn't been sort of diluted or polluted by convention's idea of how. Yeah. I think this today when I go, when I work and in, go into these family offices and I'm working on the marketing plan that the CEO often will want to hire someone who's done marketing in that industry for 20 years. Mm. And you immediately feel that that's the fastest route to not standing out at all and not having any point of difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it depends what you want to achieve. If you are a family office or if you're managing the wealth of, you know, generational rich families, then perhaps you do want to look trustworthy and like everyone else. If you're, a challenger bank appealing to 21 to 25 year olds, you maybe you want a different approach. I, I don't think there's a right answer, but I think authenticity gets you a really, really long way, whoever your target demographic is. I am um, one of the things, so we talked a little bit there about the, your best times at Monzo. And I wasn't surprised to hear that it was when the company was small. Um, cause I've heard that before, but I, I also understand the feeling. Um, and your worst times. Um, least enjoyable times, least enjoyable. Uh, I never liked fundraising. We did that a lot. I mean, I, and I had to, I think Monzo's raised something like 600 million and I probably did 400 of that. Um, that was always tough. Uh, and you only hear about the really quick round, the, you know, the- Ad funding. Yeah, and the, we hit a billion. The round where we hit a billion valuation was very, very fast um, and very competitive. So it was easy, but all the other rounds were real slog. So fundraising was never fun. 
We had a weird time with the press where they spent the first three or four years almost not idolizing us, but certainly building us up, you know, the new kind of, uh, the, the sort of next great hope almost. Um, and we could almost do nothing wrong, which is not healthy. And then we got big enough and it flipped overnight. And just everything we did was we'd get uh, like vitriol for in a way that I, I mean, I can understand it because it drives readership. Right. And it's, um, there was a point in time where the Telegraph would put Monzo in the headline at least every day. Even if it was a story about one of our competitors, it would be Monzo competitor, blah, doing, it's just like, what, why? And I, I eventually sort of called out the journalists on this and sort of took him for a beer and was like, look, come on, tell me what's going on. And he's like, look, every time I put your name in the headline, or rather he's like, look, it's my subs who do it. I, I write the article, they choose the headline um, or my editor. But every time they do that, we just get way more subscribers. It's like, you know, sorry. Um, but it it was really the entire, from the BBC to the Telegraph to everyone, it felt like a pile-on in a way that didn't seem fair, uh, really. And, it's, and not to say that we never did anything wrong, we absolutely did. But even the good stuff we did got, um, got negative headlines. Um, and I think that's a peculiarity of the British press in particular, sort of building something up until it's like, big enough to tear down. And that was just so confusing. Um, yeah, that was tough. At one point we had a BBC camera crew outside our office. Um, and this was when we, we'd grown big enough. We had um, a small a small minority of people using Monzo for financial crime, basically for money laundering, for scams. Um, and we'd have to freeze their account and we weren't allowed to tell them why we'd frozen their account. We'd sort of send the money back to where it, where it, wherever it, it had come from, which is a very frustrating experience, really. And it's quite strict in the law that you have to shut the account. You can't tell the person. So it's it's a really bad customer experience. Um, but Watchdog were running a, a program about this, you know, Monzo Freezer's accounts. And they brought us a series of accounts that we'd frozen um, over a series of, sort of several weeks saying, you know, this is we've got you and we sort of brought the editor of the program in and said look here is the here's the criminal background of the person whose account we've frozen are you really you're really going to run a program about about this it's like oh no no okay 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 it's happened 12 times and every every one of the times we showed we the evidence and like okay you know and on the th- it was the 13th or 14th like that one's a 50 50 you know we've blocked the account we stand by it but we don't have cast iron proof and they're like great we've got you so bbc camera crew turns up and they'd commissioned a block of ice, an enormous ice sculpture with a frozen Monzo card in the ice that they dumped outside our office and put a camera crew there for the day uh, to see if they could find anyone walking past it or, you know, to watch the thing melting. Which was like, <laughs> what's going on? You know, I was like, I started this company to try and sort of build a better bank. And somehow the BBC is camped outside my office trying to like, I don't know. I don't know what they're trying to do. Um, drive drive viewership um but that was deeply annoying this whole press thing is i've heard this a million times and it terrifies the shit out of me because you know joining dragon's den you join and i was like oh my god amazing and then someone told me i think it might be one of the other dragons that's been there for nearly two decades said here's what's here's what here's what's going to happen yeah is they're going to build you up to a point where you're interesting enough to tear down again yeah and yep. hearing you say the same thing terrifies the life out of me. And it happens in every in tech startups. Um, Facebook? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Facebook's a great example of it, but it happens to sports stars, it happens to politicians, it happens to, you know, singers. Yeah. It, yeah. What advice would you give someone that's... Don't read the good stuff. 
or the you know just ignore it all basically i think it's all yeah just ignore it all the hype and the yeah because when they're good when they're writing good stuff that's that's overblown as well that's not real life the bad stuff's also not true so just i just ignore it all and did that have an impact on your mental health the worst parts of the press coverage it didn't help and i stopped reading it you know, i genuinely stopped reading it and i'd have friends sort of come and say it you know on a saturday or sunday they'd read the the weekend papers and it's like are you all right it's like i'm fine like what what have i done that's the worst because then you've got to justify to people you care about yeah and make them not care and i'm like i'm fine what and mm. they're like okay just don't read the times this weekend it's like yeah never read the times um that was annoying but i don't know so yeah the um the press was not fun um investment was not fun regulation got really really tough by the end because we were a bank and ultimately if we fail the government has to step in and refund everyone their money mm. so the rules there were very very strict and because we got so big uh, so early and weren't profitable that that got quite tough um and i'm going to go through a list of the bad things now the fo- i will stop on the final one which was um just organizational politics when you get to we were almost two thousand people and when you're a hundred or two hundred people you can know everyone and you can you develop a really close culture, a really sense of team spirit. You know everyone. You can know everyone's names. Um, you get to 2,000 people and you don't. And it um, you get subcultures. So teams develop their own sort of internal narrative as to why they exist and what they're for. And you know, some teams are like, we're saving the company from this other team over there. And it's, you know, it becomes um, really not collaborative, actually. And you get, uh, especially with some sort of quite senior people, start building their little fiefdoms. Um, uh, and, and you get this just weird politics and rivalries going on that I'd never worked in a big company before. It was like total, it was totally uh, new to me, um, especially when you're, this is unfair, not everyone, but sometimes when you hire people from big banks, they've grown up with that um, uh, culture, toxic culture, frankly, um, and they bring it to a place like Monzo and everyone's sort of like, what? what that's what's weird, what's going on here? Um, but it definitely changed. Um, and that was, having to deal with that was was tricky. You talked about not being profitable. Mm. I've heard you talk about, you know, that being one of the, um, probably in hindsight, one of the things you should have thought about more in the early days, which was like the commercial model or the business model of the bank. Yep. Is that fair? Accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we, we'd thought about it for sure. I think what we didn't do was make the hard decisions to... Uh, to turn the corner earlier like we we thought about it and it was this was not it's not like we um blindly ran into unprofitability we took a series of actions we knew they were loss making but we um did that in order to to acquire users without paying so basically we swapped marketing spend we had no marketing spend but instead we ran um uh like neg- like operational losses. Mm-hmm. So we'd give away features to customers that would cost us money to get more customers because it meant our marketing budget was zero. And we grew to five or six million people with, we probably spent less than 10 million on marketing total. That's an average cost per customer of £1.50. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, so, yeah. um, but that that's, that hides operational losses. That's Our real marketing budget was giving away things like ATM with jewels for free, for example. And we just didn't take the hard decisions to turn some of those things off when we um, we got to a certain size, and it cost us way too much. Free cards, yeah. Was that I mean, expensive? The, with that, it's like the long tail. It's you know, it's the um, the very small number of people who are ordering twenty or thirty cards a year. 
most people they order zero to one it's fine but some people just lose their card every weekend and they get shrug out no problem i'll just order another one and it'll be here tomorrow morning uh and that's just annoying and costly the other thing though um so we should have paid more attention to reducing costs and taking hard decision to drive revenues earlier uh we consciously didn't uh, but part of it was avoiding those hard decisions the other half of it though is weird um I've thought about it a lot. It's basically how you get um, almost self-reinforcement from your investors. So you run a business a certain way, you get to a certain scale, and you present it to a set of investors. uh, And the ones who are more or less the ones who agree with what you've done and think it's the right approach will invest. And the ones who think you're bonkers will not invest and they'll go to someone else. The problem is that becomes self-reinforcing because they like what you did before. So like, yeah, just do more of that. And it can become um, a bit of an echo chamber where you just get the group of investors around the table who are all big supporters, who all really believe in the model. And there's not really anyone being like, you know, you're running, um, you should really think about this other stuff. And a really a really smart thing I've heard, which I didn't do, and I, I hope I will, will have the humility to do in the future, is to sort of pick out the smartest investors you can, or smartest advisors or other other founders, and ask them why you think your business will fail and then really try to think deeply about that rather than i think the natural tendency is just like ah oh, you know whatever they don't know what they're talking about i'll just the people who think i'm brilliant i'll listen to them mm. um but that can become i don't think you grow as much from that so really finding the doubters even the not so much the haters but the doubters certainly and interrogating them about your business and really trying to think through how you can um solve those problems i think that would have helped us a lot hindsight's a wonderful thing yeah now you have those some of those answers in hindsight and what were what are those answers in hindsight that you wish you'd um you'd known sooner so one of them is obviously you know getting to a profitable business model sooner making those yeah, hard decisions sure. profitable business model um cutting costs driving revenue by taking hard decisions to sort of limit some of the free features and charge to some of the things we gave for free i think we should have done that way way earlier um that's the biggest. Any cultural decisions? I know there was a merging of the startup guys and the uh, banking people, which I guess that's necessary, right? Yeah. I struggled to get the banking license without that. And mm-hmm. you've seen, you can see that at Revolut. Mm-hmm. You look at all their recent senior hires over the last year or two, and it's big wigs from the big banks because they're trying to get a banking license. So I think that's sort of inevitable. Um, and you pay a cost for that. You pay the price. Um, customer service is always a, one of big, one of our... Uh, investors who shall name, remain nameless um, was a bit of contrarian. Basically, said the quality of your customer service is too high, and it's costing you too much, and it's going to be the you know it's going to be the weight around your neck for the next whatever ten years until you can slash it. And I'm not sure if he was right or not. Actually, um, that's one I still debate. Um, I've noticed Revol- Revolut's uh, customer service has declined. Month, almost month over month for the last two years. I've been a customer there and at Monzo, but Revolut, I, they've made a real significant, it feels like, effort to either cut back on customer service costs or just because they've got more users, they're struggling. Yeah. But I've from when I joined Revolut, it was just amazing. Yep. And two years, almost three years on, it's just awful. Yeah. And I think Monzo, is, I, hopefully it's not awful, but I think it was amazing at the start. And I think it's now... Variable. 
I think sometimes it's really, really great, but sometimes you end up waiting a little too long. Sometimes it's a little too hard to talk to a customer service agent, arguably. I think, I still think it's pretty good, but in the early days, it was spectacular. It was the number one thing our customers talked about was the service, um, by far. You'd look on social media or whatever, it was just, um, and if we'd had the revenue to support that, I think we could have continued. It's not, it's not very expensive. It cost us about 12 or 13 pounds per customer per year to provide that. And I think the benchmark that everyone's aiming for is less than that, clearly. Um, and so the drive is always to automate more, to put you know chatbots in, to do whatever. There comes a point in your journey with Monzo where you realise that you're no longer enjoying it. Or was for me in my business, it was kind of like a, there wasn't a point. It wasn't a day when I woke up. It was kind of a compounding of several issues that slowly yep. wore me down. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, it was that plus COVID. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. And then COVID yeah, was like yeah. the knockout punch. Same. Um, but yeah, it was four or five, four or five, six issues that meant for the last year or two, I wasn't having a good time really. And I talked to my board about it. I talked to investors um, about, I think hiring really good senior leaders was part of the potential solution. And we didn't do that fast enough. Um, we've got some great, great senior leaders in now. Um, and I sort of wonder what would have happened if we could have got those people in a year or two earlier. Um, possibly they wouldn't, we wouldn't have paid them enough. They wouldn't have joined. Um, well, I did talk to them about this. They, a TS, our new CEO is like, if you'd have come five years ago, I would have joined five years ago. I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> uh, go back in time. Um, uh, but yeah, it was four, five, six issues and then COVID. And that was just, I mean, for so many people in the world, that was horrific. For us, our revenue declined at least 50% within about a week or so. Uh, the cost base was the same. Revenue goes down 50%. We were already loss making. So now it's sort of, we had a fund, we had a hundred million pound funding round lined up to close on the Monday. And on Friday before London went into lockdown and all the term sheets got pulled. Uh, so again, retrospects, uh, hindsight is 2020. Um, Everything has bounced back. Even like the in, in the investment market, private investment and public investments are stronger than it was pre-COVID, and so people just take these really short-term decisions in a kind of a, in a shock in a crisis, destroy a ton of value for themselves, um, and you know six, nine, twelve months later, everything's bounced back even harder. I just don't understand it. Um, but anyway, COVID was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back, um, and about six weeks into that six to eight weeks I'm just like I'm I'm working seven days a week I'm not sleeping here this is just you know I need sort of throw the towel in almost you know I need to I need to be subbed out had you been thinking about that conversation for some time before you got to the point where you you approached the board with d- decisiveness that this is yeah. me done I'm not even thinking about it I've been talking to them about really? it for a year or two yeah not the whole board, but yeah, two our, members our chairman friends. and our, our one of our lead investors. Absolutely, we'd we'd had multiple conversations about me not enjoying the role as it was then configured, and the answer was like, okay, let's reconfigure a role. Let's bring people around you. Let's because because we were growing so quickly, um, and the way that senior hiring works. By the time you realise you've got a gap, it's twelve to eighteen months before you can actually fill that gap. And you know, Muggins here ends up doing. To be fair, all of my senior team were doing more than one job trying to fill the gaps but um that was the biggest problem for me that we didn't have the right senior leadership in place so i was working several jobs uh and so the conversation was always okay well we'll fill these roles we'll fill these roles but by the time you filled that role this other role over there the person who was doing really well at 200 you're now 2000 people and the person's burnt out or you know not doing well and you have to replace them and so it was like whack-a-mole 
Um, and I think that was the biggest contributing factor. But those are conversations I very regularly had with um, board members and investors. Do you think those conversations were treated with, with urgency? No. From, from either yourself or the board? No, absolutely yeah. not. Uh, it was always like, oh yeah. oh yeah, we'll just hire, you know, we'll hire the person and it will be fine. Or, oh, just stick it out for another couple of years and it'll all be fine. And eventually it's like, no, I've got a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think a lot of them did a huge amount. I mean, Eileen, the, the one of our investors from Passion, personally put in so much time to support the company and to support me. And I'm really, really grateful for that. Uh, but ultimately, um, yeah, we just didn't hire se- great senior people fast enough. That If I can find one root cause, it was that. Do you think if you'd gone to the board with more urgency and decisiveness yourself, that you would have been taken more seriously? If you had said, listen, I'm going to go <laughs> next week if these issues aren't fixed. Because I, I, I'm, I'm asking these questions for same reasons as uh, I said before. I went through the same thing where I yeah. approached the board and said, I've got some problems here. These are the issues. Can we fix them? And it was probably a little bit of lip service Yeah, until the day that I resigned. Yeah. I don't know. I think a lot of people put a lot of effort into fixing it. Ultimately, it was like on me to fix. Sure. Yeah, no, no one else is going to come in and hire a really top senior team for me. It's that's sort of my job. Um, so I don't know. I also, I do wonder whether you really could have got those great senior people in at an earlier stage. The analogy is sort of like a football team. You're starting in the, I don't know what the fourth division now is called, but you know, you're there and you get promoted mm. and you want to hire someone for the third division, but everyone's like, oh, go and hire Ronaldo. It's like, Ronaldo is not coming to play for a third division team, you know? So it's a constant process of up, like gradually upgrading until you get into the premiership. Um, and even then, you know, you're, you're Charlton Athletic or something. Um, uh, so I just think it's tough. I don't, I don't think there's a magic bullet, actually. You said you weren't sleeping, working mm-hmm. seven days a week. Talk me through those moments. When you, when things, uh, (laughs) have you experienced that? I've, oh, definitely experienced, um, anxiety and not sleeping well and an issue usually like payroll or some kind of investor issue plaguing me for days and days and then getting sick. Yeah. And, and why have I got a cold? I never get a cold. And then you're oh, of course, because there's no fucking money in the bank or something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Similar things uh, we talked about a little earlier, sort of that depletion of emotional energy so that you have a, you know, there's a sort of a problem there. You need to take a decision about maybe it's like one of your senior teams not working out. And you know, you have to fire them basically. But like, if I do that, that's going to cause a bunch of other knock-on problems I don't want to deal with yet because I'm, I'm just trying to close this like hundred million pound funding round. So just let me focus on that. And and the um, the realization was sort of when the round closes, when the money's in the bank and that weight lifts, you then look at all these other problems and they're very, very easy. Actually, like you re-energize quite quickly and able to take those decisions. But while there's just too many things sort of resting on your shoulders, you it piles up and piles up and piles up. And so for me, yeah, it was um, waking up at sort of four or five in the morning, often with, um, often with problems in the cold light of day are relatively easy to solve. But this, the conscious part of your mind gets turned off when you're sleeping. It's a sort of subconscious, like irrational part that blows the thing into a unsolvable problem. And the next morning, you can, whatever, you write it down, you come back to the, the next day and go, that, that's ridiculous. Why am I even worrying about that? Um, so it's not a rational thing. It's, a, it's much more of an emotional 
um, or at least for me, emotional response. Um, but because you're tired, you make worse decisions. And because you make worse decisions, you end up creating more problems for yourself. Um, you know, and the, the solution is easy to say and hard to do, which is exercise more and, you know, stay off alcohol and get to bed early and don't have your phone in your bedroom and like turn off your computer at the weekends, all this sort of stuff you know you should do. Um, but when each one gives way, the next one's harder, you know, you haven't slept well, so you don't want to go to the gym in the morning and because you don't get to the gym, you blah, 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 blah. Um, so you can either get into, I think, really good reinforcing cycles or very destructive kind of negatively reinforcing cycles. Because you knew your mind was going to do that when you fell asleep. Did you, upon getting in bed and laying down, presumably you knew that your mind was then going to run off with all of the thoughts and worries. Mm. Did that make that process just before you fall asleep quite um, unpleasant? Yes. And sort of going to sleep almost inevitably knowing you're going to wake up at 4am is uh, quite annoying to say the least. Um, And the... a very depressing thing to say but sometimes when I did sleep a sort of full night I'd wake up at 7, 8, 9am whatever and for about 3 or 4 seconds I'd forgotten what my life was like I'd forgotten what I was doing what my job was all the pressures and I was like I was calm and I was sort of you know not stressed not anxious and then 3 or 4 seconds later all the memories came back and it was just like this crushing weight that uh, <laughs> that feeling was just terrible. And that really was the moment I was just sort of knew this is, this is no life. You know, I want the the life three seconds ago where I can wake up and not be worried and not be stressed and not feel like just anxious the whole time. Like there would, there were no other emotions in my life really apart from just anxiety. That was a 10 out of 10 and every other emotion felt like it's a, the volume had been switched down to one out of 10 because like anxiety was just 10 out of 10. And that was no fun. How long did that last? A year and a half, two years, maybe. Fucking hell. Yep. Oh, God, I can imagine two years. Not fun. And I split up with my girlfriend as a result of it. It's like, mate, you know, my life's shit. What can I do about it? Let's like one by one try and change things. Um, and rather than changing the job first, I changed the girlfriend first. Um, and that was really tough. Um, I left Monzo and within about a a week or so, I was sleeping th- perfectly through the night. I mean, really, it just all went away. Yeah. And now, I, you know, I am, uh, I hesitate the word, to use the word happy, but yeah, I'm happy, like mm. content, calm, relaxed. Like I find things to do with my day that I find, you know, that I enjoy. And, and suddenly like the small, those like emotions that were one out of 10, when they're not being crushed by a 10 out of 10 anxiety, like sort of start to bloom back, which is cool which um, I like. This is life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is how normal people feel. <laughs> the girlfriend topic I find compelling because I, I've also struggled in that department forever. Yeah. Um, how, how was it trying to hold it down a relationship whilst also this business just being this crushing force in your life? Terrible. <laughs> uh, and I really, um, uh, we, we, we're um, good friends still, but she was a lovely, kind, considerate person. And I was just not a nice person to be around a lot of the time. Just like really um, short-tempered, like 
inconsiderate and like intolerant, basically intolerant. There's something that was like m- tiny, tiny thing that a normal person would just be like, oh, that's just a cute quirk. I feel like that's so irritating, you know. Um, and so we just ended up not enjoying spending time together, sadly. Um, and I, I think she was doing a lot to try to, you know, make our lives together wonderful. And I was just a monster because my, primarily because my work was so shit, um, which I regret a lot. It's interesting. So when, um, what I noticed about myself is when I had a girlfriend at at the height of my, uh, CEO bullshit, um, I would make her feel incredibly lonely, even if I sat next to her because Mm. I, you know, I was selfish and self-absorbed and I did, wasn't interested in anything but my own problems. And yep. I also didn't particularly want to talk to her about them because that was just, I felt like it would grow the problem if I then went home and just yep. brain dumped on her. Yep. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think it's possible for a CEO that's in a high intensity situation to have a successful early stage relationship? I mean, I never managed, but I believe it is possible. I've seen other people do it. And then you, I think, um, Part of it is maturity and um, uh, detachment, but not in a bad way. And I mean detachment from your job, being able to compartmentalize. So Paul, one of my co-founders, a little bit older, um, and I think he had a really great ability to sort of come to work and be fully present in work and then to go home and just totally switch it off. So he, as soon as his head hit the pillow, he was asleep. Uh, he had um, he and his wife run a, a lovely alpaca farm in the north of England. And he was just really good at having sort of of compartmentalizing his life. I think similarly with TS, the new um, the new CEO at Monzo, he's an older guy. Um, I think he's in his fifties uh, and has run big banks before, and is you know finds it challenging and exciting and a little stressful. But I think he's able to go back to his family and and sort of switch that part of his brain off. Mm. And I could never do that. I, it was all consuming, uh, sort of emotionally, that I would never even on holiday. I could never switch off the nagging feeling about the work. Um, so towards the end, there was a little bit more detachment and talking to Jonas, my co-founder as well. I think he took everything so personally in the early days and sort of six, seven years in, you, you, there's a bit of detachment. Um, and I think that's actually really healthy to realize that your entire person is not intrinsically linked to this company. And you can leave and the company will continue and maybe the company fails and you'll still survive. And that's sort of... Um, by the way, I think Monzo is doing incredibly well and it's not going to fail. Um, but just that emotional realization that you're not like the same being as your company, uh, would have been helpful earlier on. I heard you had a red phone in your bedroom or something. Is that true? Yes. Why was it red? (laughs) Um, it was more like a sort of, um, childish pink color, actually. Uh, the red phone is probably a dramatization. I think I did describe it as a red phone. It was a pink, it was an old Nokia, um, uh, and why? Because, so the reason why um, is, first of all, because to help sleep, I didn't keep my own mobile in my bedroom. So I turned it off and I had it charging out in the hallway, nice. which I think is, I encourage everyone to do. I think it's great because, you know, the first thing I used to do when I wake up and sometimes I do it still is like you grab the phone and start, and it's just not healthy. <sighs> so not having the phone in your eye lasting at night, not having the first thing in the morning, just charge it in another room. Um, that is a great step. Unfortunately, when there are really significant problems at three or four in the morning, and it doesn't happen often, but it, you know, it happened occasionally, you need to be able to wake the senior management team up and the CEO up to make the hard calls. 
Um, and so that phone was like the bat phone. You know, if something went wrong, that would be the only one in my room. The only, no one had the number. It was linked to our automatic alerting system. So if at Monzo, if something went wrong, you sort of click a button, it would escalate. And if it got escalated far enough, the CEO gets woken up. But only that system had the phone number of this okay. phone. And so if it rang, it was because the bank was down. Um, and that happened a handful of times, not, you know, not every week, but every two or three months sometimes. Um, what an awful phone call. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't a person. It was a bot, you know, it's a robot saying like, wake up, there's an incident, you are required to blah, 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 blah. It's like, ugh. Yeah, that, it's horrible. Because you I can see by be, your hand gesture then how it felt. Yeah, the heart, your heart drops and you know it's going to be the rest of your week, if not your month, is going to be ruined. And it's, you don't know if this is like the one that's going to kill the company. We had a few like that. That's like, you know, is, is, and I think a lot of founders have like those moments like, oh shit is, you know, is this it? Is this the moment the company dies? Um, and there's often not a lot you can do actually as a, you know, your engineers running around trying to fix a problem and you getting stuck in is not going to help, help things. So you're sort of almost like a helpless, uh, sideline observer. Um, you know, you have to make the phone call to the board and to the investors and sometimes to the regulators at four in the morning. Um, but yeah, it's, you're in a pretty helpless situation. But yes, there was a red phone. It was more like a pink Nokia. Okay. But it sounds better if you... <laughs> it sounds more yeah, dramatic. it sounds way, way, it sounds way, way more dramatic. If it's in a, the movie, it'll definitely be a red phone. Yeah. Um, it'll be in like a box with like a maybe a code yeah. on it. Um, I find that what you just said, they're really, really interesting. So that there's... Because I've been through that, those key moments where you're not sure if your company's going to survive. Yeah. And... It feels like the answer or the, the determinant factor is actually outside of your control. Yep. So it's someone else's decision whether your company su- survives. Yep. How, did you have many moments like that where it felt like it was someone else's decision if your company was going to survive? An investor or... Yeah, yeah. And not loads, but a handful. So early investment rounds, um, it was binary. You know, if we don't raise the money, we, we're folding. The later rounds were more like, the money's going to come in at some Absolutely. valuation. Yeah. Um, uh, or some early outages. We had a really very bad, we were still a prepaid card at the time. And one of our suppliers, which connected us to the MasterCard network, went down, like really ha- went down hard for about 10 or 11 hours. We didn't know it was going to be 10 or 11 hours. It just was down and we phoned them up and they were panicking and didn't have a, they didn't know when it's going to be back. And so, was, you know, we had about 300,000 cards at the time, sort of like, this could be two months, like, all the cards could not work for two months now or rather it would take us two months to rebuild this thing mm. um and that yeah we're just sitting there thinking this is we pick it's our fault in the sense that we picked the supplier but beyond that like they just fucked up right then you know I, it it was it was totally ridiculous what had happened in retrospect but um yeah that was a real like we can't do anything. We literally, you know, we're sitting there on customer support. The entire company we pulled in on a Sunday to respond to all the customers and to proactively alert and all this good stuff. But that was a sort of, we don't know if this is even going to come back online. Outside of the business and the chaos of the business, what was your life at that point? Um, fairly normal. Um, I'm, we had a pretty good culture around sort of work-life balance at Monzo. Um, you know, mostly I was working five days a week, unless we were fundraising, I guess. And I traveled probably a week every month, mostly for fundraising. Um, but I had a really close group of friends, mostly from, uh, you know, growing up, mostly from my secondary school, actually. Um, 
I lived with my girlfriend. We lived, you know, we lived in a big house with friends. We cooked a lot. Um, I took up pottery. I, I exercised a, f- yeah, a fair amount. It was very, very normal. Not really nothing extraordinary, but I wasn't working a hundred hours a week for sure. I was doing 45, 50, 55 hours. Um, really not a, it, the time pressure was not the problem. It was the mental, like the mental load, the inability to switch off outside those hours. And then boom, pandemic yeah. comes around, term sheets get pulled. Yep. You're sat there, you've already, you know, it's by the sounds of it, you're already on the verge of, well, you already weren't happy with how things were going. And then that's the, I guess, the straw that broke the camel's back. For sure. When you realised that you were going to depart and you knew there was a date, you knew people were going to know, you knew it was going to come out in the press, what were the range of emotions and was sadness one of them? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, 80% was just like, I can breathe again. So it was overwhelmingly positive for me. I, I, and I'm not afraid to say that. Um, and so I don't want to build it up and, you know, it's a sort of negative mm. thing really. But there were 20% things like sadness that I was leaving a team that I really, really liked overwhelmingly. Um, guilt that I'd recruited many of these people and some of them had joined to come and work with me. Um, and that I was leaving them to kind of fix the mess. Um, yeah, guilt, I think was more than sadness. Were were there tears shed? Um, I cry quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I cried as well when I, I went through a range of emotions. My first one was, I was angry a little bit because I, as I said, I'd been given a lot of felt, what felt like lip service. So I was annoyed at first, but then when I realized that I was actually going to send the email, it was like gratitude and some kind of like uh, sad or happy tears. Yeah. Um, I, uh, so I did an all hands, I announced it at a, on a video call with like 1500 people or something. And I definitely welled up at one or two points there. Um, in a gen, in a genuine way, but, um, what I have learned over the last few years is that, um, vulnerability is the best way to inspire, uh, is confidence, trust, sort of become a leader to show uh, if it's genuine, you know, you can't sort of, you know, (laughs) the fake tears, but genuinely like showing your emotion and showing your vulnerability and showing your screw ups is such a powerful way to inspire followership. Um, and so I, what it doesn't, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of that or embarrassed by, you know, I was sort of welling up on a call with 1500 people, but it wasn't the first time I like practically cried in front of the company. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not ashamed of that. So, and then the, uh, the weightlifting. Yeah. Great. <laughs> what a feeling oh my gosh. when you, no one can fucking email you and, you know. <laughs> um, it was great. Actually, it wasn't, it was great. But then we were in the midst of a lockdown mm. and I was, my house was having building work done. So I had to get out of my house with four housemates. We went to a, a farmhouse in Devon, which was idyllic, but everyone else was working. I had no job. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was pretty boring, actually, for uh, quite a while. I think if, you know, if London had been booming and I could kind of go out and meet people and have fun, it would have been a great experience. But actually, that's some, especially uh, if remember sort of thinking back to April, May of last year, when everything was really hard, sort of locked down still, April, May 2020. Not a fun experience. Really. And I'm, I think I am an extrovert um, 
thought, I've thought about this a lot. I really, I get energy from being around people. And I was with four people who are just working all the time and um, in the middle of rural Devon. Yeah, not fun. But. I mean, it's a lot to go from having such an intense, overwhelming purpose and sense of mission every day to having pretty much none yeah. and waking up in the morning and thinking, <laughs> yeah, what am I going to do today? What, yeah. what, what happens today? It's weird because my time was, especially Monday to Friday, was scheduled from sort of 9am 9, 9 till about 7 or 8pm was scheduled down to the down to five minutes easily. Um, and you'd look at my diary, there would you wouldn't find more than five minutes spare sort of in that block. So yes, having nothing to do was uh, kind of weird. And so I, you know, I wrote a list of all the things I wanted to do. I, I've actually had this list for five or six years. So I s- started looking down the list for things I could do whilst in lockdown. Um, many of the things I couldn't yet do. So I started drawing. I spent two or three months drawing. I saw that um, Hockney had started using his iPad. So I started drawing on my iPad, uh, which I I only kept up for about a month or two. Um, but learning a language was on the list. I bought some kite surfing gear and did a load of kite surfing, which was amazing. Now um, I'm training up to um, a big offshore sailing race. So you kind of a yacht race called Fastnet. Uh, so that's in August. I'm learning to fly. So I've ha- I have a list. Um, so now my time is not as plan but it's still and i'm spending a couple of days a week vaccinating people which is um, uh-huh. which is very rewarding um so i'm busy again but each of it is like not inconsequential i think the vaccination stuff is is a great thing to do but if i wasn't there there would be someone else there you know doing the jabbing um so each one i could sort of walk away from pretty easily so it's a it's busy but it's low low pressure i guess yeah and it seems like you're focusing on things that give you like in, intrinsic joy. Yeah. And learning. I really like learning um, any, really anything. So the process of going from a complete novice to someone, you know, mediocre, uh, I love. Um, and I'm angel investing. That's a, to keep a connection to the tech community. I'm, I've made seven or eight investments in the first half of 2021. I'll probably make another seven or eight towards the end of the year. And I'm helping out a few of the, or at least... I'm going in to bother the founders, whether I'm helping or not, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tom's here again. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I like. It's a weird job. It feels like a job where you have to pay to go to work, you know? Uh-huh. Um, but I like that a lot. Uh, my, me and my co-founder went on, felt two very different things when we departed. We part- departed at the same time, pretty much. And um, he, because he didn't have anything to do, um, upon departing, I think he struggled quite significantly. Yeah. You, you, kind of, you kind of lose the orientation in your life. And yeah. you're right, when your schedule, you're so used to your schedule running your life, when there's nothing there, you get out of bed a bit later and then you, you, you know, you can, that's that sense of lacking purpose. You see it within Olympic athletes like Michael Phelps when he wins all the gold medals and then comes home. They call it gold medal depression. Mm. When you don't have that thing you're striving towards or for, that meaningful goal, life can seem to lose orientation a little bit. Your schedule now, is it, is it as busy now as it was when you were working? No, no. I mean, like the Dragon's Den thing is, is maybe add, maybe brought it close because it's like 7am and I get home at midnight. Yeah. But um, Dragon's Den aside, no. And I've also, I mean, there's noth- there's, there isn't huge stakes. So even the work that I do do, the things that are in my schedule, I can just cancel it if I don't, yeah. don't want to do it. Whereas before it was huge stakes. I had to get on the flight yeah. or I had to be up at 4am to, you know, so... But, but you know, both you and me, that there's still going to be that yearning to go back. No? Do you think you'll ever go back to 
starting a company and being the CEO? I don't know. I have thought about this a lot and people have asked me uh, and I don't know. Um, the thought process goes something like, um, I, mean, I love the early stage. So you, you get a few of your mates together, people you've always wanted to work with perhaps, and you start something and one of two things happens. You fail and that, you know, now you're kind of relatively high profile founder who's onto his third thing and the third thing's flopped and like, ah, oh, we all knew he was an idiot. So like, okay, that's humiliating. Or it's a success and you grow and it becomes a 2000 person company and you're like, why have I done this to myself again? I hate running 2000 person companies. Um, so the out, I like the journey bit, but the outcome either end don't lose, lose. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem there's much upside. I mean, it, it's financially like very remunerative if you do well, but, um, it doesn't make my life happier. So, so in that sense, no, um, with some caveats, one thing I've thought about doing, which I've I've not started yet really, is kind of run a studio. So you get four or five mates together with the aim of coming up with an idea, putting in a CEO or a founder or a management team and kind of incubating it for, properly incubating it for 12 months. You know, actually like building the first version and doing the marketing. And But once it's at 12 or 18 months, putting a full management team in and sort of letting it go. You know, So you retain a minority equity stake, but really it's the the CEO and the, the management team that's that's owning and running it. So you, you're you able to do that first year, but then you're like hands off and then doing that every year for five or six years. So you, you end up with a portfolio of, I don't know, six to 10 companies. So I thought about that a bit. seems like a lot of hard work. Um, so I haven't done it yet, but I might do that. I think you'd probably end up getting sucked into the same problems. Yeah, I agree. Because I think the power law distribution of, of startup success means that one, if you are successful, one of the 10 will be incredibly successful. Mm. And then they'll be like, oh, you know, the CEO is not quite doing as well as I would have liked. And, you know, either you think you should go in or someone else thinks you should go in and you're ultimately, you're running a 2000 person company again. Yeah. And that's the thing I'm trying to avoid. Because um, I, I know a guy that does that. How's that going? Um, yes, but he hasn't avoided the bullshit. So he's, what he's, he always, he's a billionaire, he's a multi-billionaire. Um, and he says, oh, I'm not good. He, when, when press ask him, he goes, oh yeah, I'm just not good at the operational bit. I know what he means is, because I've spoken to him privately, he doesn't want to do the operational bit. Doesn't want to care about people's birthdays. It's what he always says. I don't want to have to think about <laughs> people's birthdays, right? So what he does is he comes, he'll have a passion in his life, say psychedelics. Yep. And he'll go and assemble a team a CEO, co-founding team. He'll go and hire the people and then he'll handle the fundraising piece yep. and he'll go, off you go, company. Yep. But I still know that when shit hits the fan and they've got funding issues, yep. because he is the the big name in the in the piece, he'll yep. be front and centre of trying to solve those problems. Um, I, 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 he lives a much better life than I think the CEO would. Yep. But, and I think that's fine. Like I wouldn't, I'm not looking for a zero stress life, um, but I think, yeah, a lot of the people bullshit I don't like. Um, the fun fundraising isn't fun, but I, I think I have done it enough now that I could do it again in a relatively stress-free way. But at two thousand people, it's not even remembering people's birthdays. Like, right in the calendar, like that's not. You know, I had a great assistant who would help me with a lot of that stuff. Like, it, I, it doesn't come naturally to me. It's more like, you know, there's someone misbehaving. Like 2,000 people, someone's done something stupid at the Christmas party. And like, it should be the chief people officer dealing with it, but maybe she was misbehaving. This never happened at Monzo. But um, for some reason, it ends up on your on your desk. You're like, why am I dealing with these miscreants, like, yeah. fucking around? <laughs> yeah. Like, this is not, like, on top of everything I'm doing, I'm yeah. having to sort out this HR issue. Or, you know, this... 
it, they, you have to because it. Uh, and I was thinking, I was just thinking of one incident at Christmas party because you said Christmas party. I'm not going to. Me and my know, co-founder stop. Like we would go until eight pm. And yeah, just, and then, then bounce, leave. Yeah. Just be like, this is not. Because <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> it'd be too much alcohol and. Yeah, and and when you're fifth, you're hundred people. You know each other so well that like people. I don't know. Maybe we're just lucky, but people sort of respect boundaries and behave themselves. You're at 2,000, just law of averages. Like there's, you know, one in a thousand people is going to do something stupid. So you have two of them now at 2,000 people doing something stupid every every mm. party. It's like they're going to get fired for. I, I know one incident, well, many incidents, but I mean, the crazy twists and turns of being the CEO and finding these things out. And we had someone who had been on doing, I think, Silk Road on the dark web seven years ago, got arrested. They'd worked for me for three and a half years. I thought they were a great guy. Yeah. They got sent to jail for seven years. Oh my Nicest guy in the company. And he'd done it when he was a student. All kinds of things, Christmas parties, someone's pushed someone into the toilet and kissed them. And these are the things that, in fact, you do have to make the call on. Yep. Even though it's such, it seems like such a pathetic thing, but that is sexual assault. Totally. And and you can't allow an incident like that to be mis mishandled, right? Because yep. that is like that poses an existential risk against your company. Yeah. If that were to break in the press, so yeah, I t- and you know, and it's and it's the right thing to do, but I, it should be the chief people officer handling yeah. that, right? Like yeah. that that's sort of my that was my problem. Like there were periods of time when we didn't have a chief people officer, so it just landed on my desk and. Right. I'm fine dealing with a section of those, but when you're dealing with like four or five people's jobs worth of that shit, then it gets overwhelming. So yeah, I think it always comes back. You have a incredibly sort of um, successful, talented senior team and the stress becomes less because each, you don't, as CEO, don't deal with that. Your chief people officer says, by the way, this happened and I've dealt with it. And you go, great. Oh, thank God. I love those people in business. They deal with it and then tell, they come to you with it sometimes but they tell you they've already dealt with it yep. no action required tom it's already been solved but just so you're aware yep. oh, i love yeah, those yeah. people and that's but that's how a senior team should work really um and at its best it works like that it's it is magical death threats <laughs> <laughs> nice little transition there oh, yes. <laughs> i'd never got death threats as the ceo of social chain but i hear that you got a few uh not loads but yes we and um and several of our staff as well um, and we got people turning up to the office being, we had security, full-time security at our office and we still do now because customers would turn up sometimes with weapons. Um, they threatened to turn up with, you know, a bottle of acid and throw acid in someone's face. Um, yeah. And yeah. And come, you know, there were sort of groups on social media who sort of try to find our addresses and sort of hand them around because I mean, with 6 million customers, again, you sort of probabilities if one in a million is a bad egg you've got six bad eggs um because we were a bank we dealt with people's money and because we had obligations to detect and prevent financial crime we would um we would detect criminals and shut their accounts down and the re- like the really pro criminals would just treat it as a c- cost of doing business right it's like fine we've got thousands of these things it was like the amateur criminal (laughs) who like really thought he had a payday it's like he scammed some old lady out of her retirement you know he's got 20 grand you were like no shutting that down sorry sending it back and they got crazy like this was my big payoff i'm gonna come and fuck you up um and clearly there were times when we blocked accounts incorrectly when we were if you're blocking tens of thousands of accounts 
you absolutely are going to get it wrong occasionally. And it's sometimes it takes too long to get money back. And we work really hard to get that time period really, really as quick as possible. But still the law gets in the way. You, know, you have to report it to the National Crime Agency. You have to wait for them to get back to you. And it can take four weeks and they just don't get back to you. So it's like, okay, we'll give them the four weeks and then we'll refund you. So there are rare cases where you're sitting on a, a legitimate customer's money for four weeks and they're going ballistic because they can't feed their kids or whatever. But a lot of the time it's scammer who's like, they would phone up and they would have a record of a baby playing in the background. So, you know, I can't, can't feed my baby. And you, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, it was never the professional criminals because they just treated it as a cost of doing business. And by the way, there are a ton of those and we, and we caught um, way more than our fair share. We were using a lot of um, basic machine learning to track sort of weird patterns and shutting their accounts down. We work very, very closely with the with law enforcement to to shut a bunch of these things down. I'm, some of them were like wild. There was a big ring a couple of years, no, probably three or four years ago now, where um, if you go to a fuel pump, you can um, you basically put your you sort of pay at the pump. Yeah. But what it would do is pre-authorize a penny on your card. You'd pump your fuel, and then it would try and then it would calculate how much fuel you'd actually spent, and then then take the payment. So people get a Monzo card, put 1p on it, swipe it, and then go with a modified Ford Transit. So it's not like a 80 quid of petrol. The whole thing was a fuel tanker. So they'd put 10 grand of petrol into their Ford Transit and then just drive off. And the the payment on the card would bounce and they'd go and use that to like, they'd sell it to whoever wants petrol, like hauliers, uh, farmers, whatever. Um, But they're basically scamming um, all of these petrol stations. Uh, so we spotted that pretty quickly um, and shut that down, which I'm really, really proud of. Um, there were several people trafficking rings where they would um, bring in women from um, often East, like East, um, Eastern Europe uh, and then traffic them for sex, basically. Um, and you'd spot patterns of behavior, like patterns of spend, which suggests basically someone is being driven around in a, in an Uber or a taxi to, um, to be pimped out. Um, and it, we'd spot that and work with law enforcement to actually like um, go and rescue people, which is amazing. Like that's an amazing, amazing feeling. Um, But, and and those were mostly the pros who were like, meh, you know, you got us this time. We've got these other rings. So like, whatever. But it was mostly the amateur ones who get really, really angry. You know, they'd scammed three or four grand out of someone. And sounds like a lot to think about, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's all of this hidden stuff. You know, you know, you, you think of Monzo and it's like the hot coral card and some great branding. Yeah, I thought it was just a like nice coloured card. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, it was serious by the end. Like the running a bank is serious. We were processing, I don't know, a hundred billion pounds a year or something of payments. Like it, this is it's a, a lot of money. It's people's salaries. It's and you six million customers. You see their whole life. You see the great stuff and you see the terrible stuff. Um, were you ever? scared or threatened personally did you ever feel threatened personally in terms of your personal security was there ever where you thought you know actually i I do feel a bit unsafe here um i had security there was a we got a security firm to come and like look at my online profile look at my house and uh figure out how much of it i was in danger and that was a bit unsettling and there were times when especially when we had customers saying i'm you know we know where your office is and you don't know who I am, but I'm going to come with a bottle of acid and I'm going to throw it in someone's face. So that as you left, as you left the office, there was a bit of, you know, a little apprehension there, certainly. 
Um, but but no, in general, no. It wasn't something I live with every single day. But um, but it was on the on your mind certainly in a way that I think most people at most companies, thankfully, don't have to deal with that kind of shit. But now you're enjoying the small things in life. Yeah. Right maybe I should go back to therapy now and like, <laughs> it, maybe it could make it even better. What yeah, are those no, small things in life that you're enjoying? What are they? Yeah. Walking so, in the park, I heard. So uh, my housemate's got a dog recently. That's quite fun. Um, uh, a lot of my friends have just had children. So mm-hmm. not me, but you know, my, um, I'm godfather to a couple of young kids. My brother has, has a young girl now. Um, a and, disproportionate amount of kids. You're, you're, you're getting, same as me, I'm the godfather to all of my friends' kids now. It's, uh, I'm not sure I have any friends left, really, who are not either parents or trying to become parents. We're, you know, I'm 35, uh, so it's, I'm trying to find new younger friends now so I can <laughs> uh, avoid that stage of my life for another few years. Um, yeah, I, I love pottery, I'm learning to fly, I'm sailing, uh, I love to cycle, I kite surf, a lot of active outdoorsy stuff. I'm growing plants on my roof. Uh, my courgettes have just come out, which is, uh, yeah, they're great. What about your relationships? Are you single, taken? I'm dating. Dating. I am dating. Uh, I've always been um, intrigued by dating apps. I worked mm-hmm. at one. Um, I've written about 20% of a book on one. Oh, wow. But over like the last 12 years, it, I, it's not going to get finished. Right. Um, so I've been intrigued by that sort of whole scene for a while. Um yeah, and I'm dating and sort of having fun, but I'm not um, not good at settling down, I think. Or I don't know, maybe I've just not met the right person to settle down. I, I don't know. As I really enjoy meeting new people, but after six months or a year or something, I'm sort of like, um, I don't know what it is. That's sort of like deciding to commit to each other and spend the rest of your life together. I really admire people who are able to do that because i have not yet been able to do that have you managed to analyze where you think that might come from <sighs> like inability to be content this is what i should go and talk to a therapist about no because i'm asking for myself actually, i was just <laughs> wondering if you figured it out <laughs> i like novelty i really like new things new experiences and i get bored quite easily um so i don't know yeah probably i think combining um uh psychedelics and therapy to solve this problem might be be my next challenge have you ever done psychedelics i haven't neither have i i would love to i really would. wish i could say i had (laughs) i'm trying to but it's just finding the right place and time i think yeah so what's um so we look forward at at the future of of your life i guess a lot of a lot of question marks you're not really sure which direction you're going because i think i asked i think you well i think you you kind of answered yourself at the start about your your purpose in life now yeah what your purpose i don't have one and i'm totally fine with that yeah um I th- I think looking forward to sort of when I'm 60 65 um I think I would like a family around mm. but I'm not sure I'm willing to make the sacrifices to put in the hard work to actually make that happen you know what I mean what are those sacrifices like giving up the fun single life like the bringing up a baby isn't I've seen it secondhand you know I'm not doing it day in day out but it's hard really and I have huge respect for that I'm just not sure I'm willing to sacrifice my freedom and my my total lack of like obligation um, for that future pay. And lots of people find raising babies rewarding. I've heard. <laughs> oh my God. Um, 
I do not. Uh, but that sort of future payoff of having, you know, that kind of close family, it's, it's I can't imagine being 65 and not having that. But then I'm not sure I'm going to like make the sacrifices today to have that. That's sort of a, something I'm puzzling around in my head. But apart from that, just sort of enjoying life and um, helping out other startups is a, is a nice way to feel like I'm giving a little bit back without taking over my life at the moment. So uh, for me, that's enough. What do you think about, I was willing to ask you, I'm glad I remembered. What do you think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally? Terrifying. Um, I don't understand it. I, I invested a little bit. Uh, it went up a lot. I thought I was the smartest person in the world. It came down again. I sold before I lost any money, really. Um, it was too stressful. For, so uh, there's a kind of there are two questions there, which like, is crypto, what do you think of cryptocurrency long term? And is it useful versus like, what is your experience of riding the roller coaster <laughs> over the last year? Um, long term, I don't know. I'm not, I can see how it's interesting, but I think it's at the moment massively overhyped. And I haven't really seen any cool applications in reality yet that solve a real human problem. That may change in future. Uh, and then, the, you know, the former bit, like the crazy speculation, I was, you know, checking the price of ethereum every 15 minutes or something it was that that's just not healthy uh so i got out and i'm again sleeping much better now that i've liquidated my crypto positions um yeah what about you are you a, a believer i i am um, so i did the whole 2017 2018 hype cycle mm-hmm. got burnt pretty bad there and then i'm a believer in blockchain as a technology yeah um I don't actually invest in Bitcoin at all. Um, I, I invest in Ethereum because I'm slightly involved in building a company in Silicon Valley in, uh, around, uh, which is based on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm also not, I'm fortunate that I'm not checking the price every day. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a very significant Ethereum holder, one of the top 5,000 in the world, Whoa. but I don't check the price because I got burnt the first time and I've just got this idea in my head that, um, I'm holding for 10 years anyway. Yep. So irrespective of what happens, I'd only yep. be checking the prices as if to inform a decision and I'm not going to make a decision. If it yep. goes down 75%, there's no decision. If it goes up, which it did. So yeah, I think I have a healthy relationship, but I didn't the first time. Yep. And also the loss of, if I were to lose all the, all the money, it wouldn't have a material impact on my happiness or life. I've heard smart friends say similar things, which is basically take a, you're basically hedging against the risk that this is like the future of the economy. Mm-hmm. And so take between five and 10% of your like net net assets, yeah. put it in crypto and really leave it for 10 years. Yes, and so if yeah. it is like the future of money, you have a, a significant enough proportion of that that you're like well set up. If it goes to zero, you've still got the other 90, 95% yeah. to sustain you. And I'm well diversified across various different sort of asset classes. So if I genuinely lost all of my Ethereum holdings, I don't think I'd lose a night's sleep. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so that's and, that's, and that makes it easy not to... But when I, when I was at Social Chain, when I, I hadn't had an exit or I hadn't taken any money off the table at all, and the price went down, it was like, oh, it, I was going up and down with the, you know, with the price. So again, it comes back to that video game mindset. And I, I think the detachment point, um, you know, when I started this podcast, Tom, I, I did it for very much, you know, when I read your story, I thought, fuck, this is exactly why I started this podcast. Because it's literally called The Diary of a CEO. Mm. And what I was trying to achieve there was to give give people a more honest view about what it takes to be a CEO. Um, And because I didn't necessarily, I think that it's been kind of, you know, rock star, like a jet ski, you know, whatever, millionaires, loads of money, private jet. Um, Whereas there's a real, as you've explained, cost, which people don't appreciate. 
um, of being a CEO. And so when I, when I read your story, I think in the papers, and you were so honest and open about the real nature of being a CEO, the side of being a CEO that I can also very much relate to. That's why I, I just needed you to come here and to, to have this conversation with me. Thank you. What is the upside of being a CEO? <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it is amazing. And I'm, I don't want to sit here and kind of complain about my mm. life. Um, I think for smart, ambitious, talented people, it can be incredibly remunerative. I mean, I, I'm financially independent now, as are you, right? And it's, I think it, um, you can create a lot of value, but also like capture some of that value personally, like, and make money. Like that's true. You can be, um, you can choose the people you work with, which I think is really, really, really important. So you can select the people around you and to, um, uh, choose who you spend your time with and you get to create something if you're successful that random people in the street use and that feeling of um being a have, having created something out of nothing this thing would not exist if it weren't for you and the team around you and that i think that feeling is um is amazing and so i don't regret it at all um i'm lucky now that i'm 35 and i don't have to work really unless i want to and all of my other friends are successful in their own careers, but they're going to be working till they're 60 or 65. Mm. Um, and so yeah, it's hard and it's stressful, but you know, it's, I wouldn't change it for sure. I would do some things differently. I'd try to, I'm not sure it would change the outcome. Um, but I think today for smart, ambitious people, I think becoming a founder is uh, probably one of the best choices they could make if they're, if they are of that mindset. It's not for everyone for sure, but I think if you're ambitious and confident and, and want to create something, it's, it's unparalleled. And the, the, the sort of the foundation of all of this, the most important thing, I guess, is to make sure that you're happy. Yeah. And that, I never thought about that. I mean, that wasn't part of my upbringing. That was always secondary. Yeah. It was always like achieving or accomplishing a goal or winning. And, and the thing that I think I personally, I don't know about anyone else, any other founders, but I never paid enough attention to whether I was happy. Um, uh, which I think was a mistake. Um, and I'm now quite consciously doing that. Um, yeah, that, I think that's the probably the downside. You, you, so many smart, ambitious people are just driven to kind of jump over ever-increasing hurdles um, without thinking about why. Did you think happiness was the outcome? Kind of, yeah. But that was the end. Yeah, sort of. Like, yeah. Um, oh, I didn't even really think about it. Yeah, it wasn't a... My family's always been quite um, ambitious and driven and sort of uh, setting goals for, you know, us as kids. Um, and I, I know other families where that is not the case. And I think talking more explicitly about like, yeah, happiness and contentment and love and relationships and those things. And then having a balance. I'm ne I've never done balance. Um, I think it's probably healthier if you do have that, you know, the different inputs and you can choose what's right for you. So you, I, I don't, I don't want to do all the point because I don't want to sound like your therapist and we're, we're almost done here. <laughs> but it really made me curious there what you were saying about your family and were your parents particularly goal orientated? Yes. They were very hard on you or? Um, ambitious for us, certainly, and uh, particularly my dad. Um, 
and I, I'm a huge admirer of what he started business youngish. I think he was, he was 35 or 40 when he set up his business and he'd retired by the time he was 45. Um, and so I always, from a very young age, thought that sort of starting businesses was, I never thought about starting business, actually I thought about running businesses. So I, I had a, a privileged upbringing. My parents were around and sent me to good schools, but really pushed me, you know, pushed me to be the top of the class. And even when I was top of the class, they'd sort of push me further. And I'd sort of say, like, come on, well, you know, I I did well in my exams to the point where it's like, there there is no more I can do in these things. I, I've got all the top marks. Um, but they sort of didn't believe me. They're like, no, no, you, you must be hiding something. Where's the... So there was always like, um, I think my dad told me when I was 10, I should go to Oxford and study law because it was the hardest course in the world. So I went to Oxford and study law, uh, which I'm not sure is super healthy, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, they're driven, very, very driven and sort of, um, because they, you know, I think their parents as well pushed them. And um, my dad always likes to claim he came from like this really working class upbringing up in Rochelle in Manchester. And it's just like, is that had a Mercedes? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, with almost the same breath, he's like, yeah, we, my mum had horses. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? This sort of working class upbringing. Um, yeah. But they, they always worked hard. They moved to Asia very young to you know, make, make a better life for themselves. And they, they did work hard and they provided us, us kids with great opportunities. Um, and I think now later in life, all of us have sort of realized that, um, thinking a little bit more about balance and like happiness and, and relationships and family is more important as important, certainly, and probably more important than, um, uh, sort of achievement and, um, and money. Have you got to the crux of you, what makes you happy? The no, not foundational really. things. Um, two or three things I know definitely make me happy. Learning. Um, new skills, whatever. I really, really, really love that. And um, s- sort of like my ex was really into, not really, that's unfair. She, um, l- is it the languages of love? Like the way you sort of express. Oh, the love languages, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so for me, acts of service. I, I hate the whole thing, but, oh, I, but I, see, me. I see that in myself. Like I love to cook for people. I love to get friends together. I love to you know cook a meal, make cocktails, whatever, whatever it is, sort of like, get a house in the countryside and invite all my best friends that I, I really like being together with groups of people that are, are careful. Uh, so learning new stuff, being together with friends and kind of creating like cooking, whatever, whatever it is. So those, those things, uh, and I, in time raising kids, maybe we'll, we will see. Um, that's more of a, an aspiration than a, you know, but I don't know. Well, listen, Tom, thank you so much for um, coming in doing this today i think what the thing that um you pr- you probably know but you might not fully realize um that i think is so incredibly powerful is your willingness to be vulnerable and honest and i just wish there were more entrepreneurs at all stages in their journey that were willing to be that vulnerable because of how um how much of a how much of um reality is so much more comforting than the like this kind of um phony um uh, untouchable narrative you get from a lot of entrepreneurs. Reality is such much more of a comforting um, place to be because I can relate to that. And that gives peace to my own struggles and hardships. And those are an unavoidable part of the human experience. And I think entrepreneurs like yourself that have been tremendously successful have disrupted an industry and um, achieved so much. You're also willing to be vulnerable. Um, 
are of a very special breed and we need more of those people. So thank you so much. And I appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.